4: From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound.
5: I can't be a father like this in my current condition and living the way that I was living. I really need to change. And so, that, man, what came with that was a whole lot of emotions. And I just didn't know how to say, this child is what's most important. I just didn't have the tools.
4: ReSound is a remix of audio stories, music, found sound, and sound bites we love from all over the world. If we could have a Pride event at
6: the Pentagon, that would send a message to every single military installation all across the world
4: that you can have one too. Today, a story that goes into the heart of the military-industrial complex. And while there, they do ask and they do tell. Also, parenting behind bars, as if it's not hard enough in person.
3: We are so excited to be here to host the Third Coast Awards tonight.
7: We are like, nerdily excited to be here. We got matching outfits.
3: Yeah, because you know, the Third Coast Awards are sometimes known as the Oscars of radio. Except unlike the Oscars, people of color actually win here. You burnt Oscars!
4: That was Kathy Tu and Tobin Lowe, hosting the 2018 Third Coast Awards Ceremony in Chicago last October. Normally, they bring their crazy fun energy to their podcast, Nancy, a show of queer stories and conversations. In this episode, they visit possibly one of the squarest places on Earth, the Pentagon. Not the first place you'd think of when it comes to gay culture, but listen up, here it comes. Here's the Pentagon's secret gaggle of gays.
2: My name is Todd Brazil. I joined the Army out of college in 1992 as an Army lieutenant in the field artillery. I spent 22 years, two months, and 28 days in the regular Army.
3: And for most of those 22 years, he didn't tell anyone he worked with that he was gay.
2: None of my commanders ever suspected, and w- actually one of my troops who did suspect, who I think was gay, also, he asked me if Dorothy was a friend of mine. He just immediately said, "You know, are you a friend of Dorothy's? And I'm like, "I I don't I don't know her, man." And <laughs> he was like, "All right, sir, sir." I, never, I, I was just curious. Never mind. So it wasn't until years later when I found out that if you're a friend of Dorothy's, that that that's like a big indicator, you know. <laughs> For five years, I was convinced I could either pray it away or uh, get it counseled away by seeing an army psychologist. So I thought, well, here's the deal I will set about creating a life for myself where I have my personal life, and then I'll set up a very You know, like it's just this impenetrable wall between my personal life and my professional life. And my friends at work will be my friends at work, but they'll never really know who I am. And then my friends outside of work will know the full me. Um, And then I met Mark. Mark and I were substantively engaged. Uh, We had exchanged rings for 11 years. For those 11 years, he followed me from assignment to assignment, um, waited for me um, while I went off to war a few times, and um, never received even a courtesy call, let alone any of the uh, rights, benefits, and privileges of a lawfully recognized um, spouse while I served. What what that man went through, um, is something no one should ever have to go through. Um, That hurt me watching what he was going through.
0: We begin tonight with something brand new in America today. It is day one. Don't ask, don't tell forced around 14,000 people to leave the armed forces because they are gay.
2: But today, the 17-year-old policy fought its last battle in the Senate. With 65 votes, the Senate voted to end the ban on gays serving openly in the military.
3: Todd was out to dinner when he got a phone call from a friend.
2: And he called to let me know how the vote had gone down and that Don't Ask, Don't Tell had been repealed. And immediately, like my eyes welled up with tears, it's been repealed. So this morning, I am proud to sign a law that will bring an end to Don't Ask, Don't Tell.
3: Not long after that, Todd was posted to the Pentagon, high up in the communications department.
2: And just before going, um, a buddy of mine said, you know, there's a this coffee group that meets in the Pentagon. They're all gay. It's civilians. It's um, people of all ranks. And it's a really great way to network. And um, you should you should give it a shot. We were
7: one part of a little budding gaggle of gays at the Pentagon. My name is Tarek Shah, and I was the Special Assistant to the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Operational Energy. As they say in Washington, the longer your title, the less important you are. I'm Alex Wagner. I am the former Chief of Staff to the 22nd
6: Secretary of the Army.
3: Alex and Tarek were civilians appointed by the Obama administration, and they were regulars at the coffee club.
6: The the Pentagon Coffee Group is a group of military officers and enlisted from every service who would come together to create a community within a building that at the time was openly skeptical at best and more likely hostile to their presence in uniform.
3: Even though Don't Ask, Don't Tell had been repealed, it's not like the military suddenly became a comfortable place for gay people. Unless you knew where to look.
7: Every Tuesday and Friday morning, we'd meet downstairs in the food court by the Dunkin' Donuts. Laughing, smiling,
6: and clearly not working. But it wasn't like someone put a big rainbow flag on the table.
3: <laughs> the coffee club wasn't exactly secret, but Todd was definitely not interested. He still wasn't out to his co-workers at the Pentagon.
2: I am just coming out of this environment where being honest and behaving um, naturally was just so, uh, not just frowned upon, but uh, but unlawful. But one day I had happened to have a meeting get canceled and I thought, you know what? I'm just gonna, just gonna check it out. I walked uh, the path to get to this place in the center of the Pentagon. Uh, I go down the escalator. And so I walk into the group and I see some faces look up like, hey man, welcome, welcome to Coffee Clutch. I just kept on walking. I just walked right through the group, and uh, it freaked me out.
3: Alex and Tarek, the civilians, they knew that something extra needed to happen for LGBT service members to know it was okay to be themselves. Something public. Something official.
6: If we could have a Pride event at the Pentagon... That would send a message to every single military installation all across the world that you can have one too. If it could be done in the heart of the Pentagon with the most senior uniformed and civilian leaders embracing and endorsing this type of event, it would be something that would be impossible to stop the momentum going forward.
3: So in early 2012, Alex and Tarek decided that they were going to organize a Pentagon Pride event that June, and it would be the first of its kind.
6: Tarek and I sat down and we shared a Burger King veggie burger and started plotting.
7: Wait, whoa, 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 wait. Burger King has a veggie burger? (laughs) Tobin, focus.
6: Tarek and I sat down and... We shared a Burger King veggie burger and started plotting how we were going to execute a pride event in the Pentagon the Pentagon way.
3: The Pentagon way. This part of the plan was crucial. Whatever picture comes to mind when you think of a pride event, this was not what they were going for. For this to work at the Pentagon, it would have to be really square.
6: which meant have a ceremony in the Pentagon Auditorium with all the pomp and circumstance, but also with all the respect for tradition and history.
3: And so this incredible milestone in the history of the Pentagon would be marked by a panel discussion.
6: My motives here were not to have a pride parade in the Pentagon, but to have an event that resembled every other event the Pentagon held, whether it was MLK Month, Black History Month, Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, in a way that all those people could be proud of it. And so we started plotting.
3: The first thing Tarek and Alex had to do is build their team. And the first person they wanted to recruit was Todd.
7: An expert in thinking about how to message things.
3: Now, Todd still wasn't out at work, but he wasn't completely hiding it either.
7: At some point,
6: he told me that he had taken Kathy Griffin to Afghanistan. And I remember going home that night and saying, Kathy Griffin is code word for something, but could he be
2: gay? <laughs> I think I outed myself um, at the first meeting. <laughs> um, but my gut reaction when Alex and Tarek brought me this was uh it's just it's too quick it's too it's just it's way too soon there's this is a needless provocation. The ink isn't even dry on the on the repeal yet. Give it some time uh, to kind of process I worked them over
6: <laughs> i work I worked them over like any i I dealt with the tods of the world before,
2: and you know. I don't really take no for an answer. It's like now is the time to put the accelerator pedal down and floor this son of a bitch because uh, people need to understand that, that the longer we push to the side and don't acknowledge, then the longer um, it'll take for people like your fiancé and my friends to, to receive the full rights and benefits uh, that they've earned. We had to go way
6: outside the chain of command in order to pull this off.
0: My name is Sue Fulton. I'm an
7: Army veteran. Sue was a pioneer in her own right as part of the first female class of graduates at West Point in 1980. For many years,
6: Sue was one of the more prominent voices advocating for repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell.
0: My greatest shame in my life was the time when I was asked by a military investigator if I was gay at a time when I did know I was gay. And I lied and said no. I had survived the investigation. I'd managed to stay in. I'd managed to get out of the army on my own terms. Many others had not. But I carried the shame and guilt for that for many, many years. And in one way or another, I've been advocating for LGBT people, particularly LGBT people in the military, ever since that.
6: Importantly, she also knows most of the Army's senior military leadership. So she had social relationships with many of the senior uniformed generals.
0: Tarek told me of this ambitious plan to hold a pride event at the Pentagon that June. And I told him, hey, whatever I can do to help, I'd be happy to do. But in the back of my mind, I was thinking, that's too early. It's not going to happen. I had to be persuaded to block the date on my calendar. I was that skeptical. And I'm an optimist. But it just, the, the Pentagon seemed so foreboding to me at the time. But I also knew that if anybody could pull it off, Alex and Tarek could.
6: So Tarek and I thought, well, what we'll do is we'll do this the way the Pentagon does its business. We wanted to put it on paper. We'd create a memo, a formal document that went up through the chain and got the right buy-in. So by the time it got to the secretary's office, this would have been an easy win. And so I assumed, and I think Tarek assumed, that this would be a no-brainer.
3: They followed all the official steps and they waited and waited and waited.
7: You know, you're not making headway in the Pentagon when your memo meets silence.
2: I recall, um, various factions within the Pentagon sort of superstructure, all but making it impossible for him to move forward. I think a lot
6: of people were genuinely concerned that a Pride Month event would look like the Fox News B-roll
2: of a Pride Parade. The chiefs of staff of the Army, Navy, and uh, uh, Air Force, and the Commandant of the Marine Corps, categorically stood in lockstep against it.
3: It was just weeks till summer, just weeks till Pride and they still didn't have the sign-off from their superiors.
6: I was so frustrated that Tarek and I had done everything right. We didn't have formal approval yet
7: from the building.
3: But they weren't about to let this opportunity go. So the Pentagon's gaggle of gays took matters into its own hands, broke rank, went rogue, but, you know, Pentagon style.
6: So I found myself at a table at a meeting representing DOD Department of Defense, at the National Security Council. And at the end of the meeting—
7: The discussion eventually came to a question to all of the national security agencies of how they were planning on celebrating Pride Month. And the State Department said, oh,
6: we're having another event with the secretary. And the Justice Department was very excited about the attorney general speaking at their event the year before. And it seemed like every federal agency was doing something for Pride Month. And then all of a sudden, it came to me. When you're sitting at a table at a meeting convened by the National Security Council, you're always going to be a little bit nervous. (laughs) Um, But I think adrenaline took over.
7: And so, you know, Alex reported that, you know, we were having a little trouble, that there was a plan in place to do a Pride event at the Pentagon, but that, um, you know, there was a question about whether it would actually happen.
6: And... I said, well, I'd love the White House to light a fire under the department's leadership to make this happen. I was asking for something that was not in my specific marching orders. I could have been fired on the spot. I mean, if the secretary of defense said to the White House, fire him, boom. I later came to find out that the Office of Cabinet Affairs, the Office of Public Engagement and the National Security Council came together at the White House to send a note to the Pentagon's leadership that they would like to see a Pride event happen.
2: I won't call it outside pressure, but what I will call it is a kind of, uh, wake the f- up. Look at what's going on around you. Don't be the only uh, you know, federal agency that attempts to squash an entire population of, of the people who uh, work for you. And we went from facing a few roadblocks to sort of
7: the gates being opened.
0: And when I got the email, it's on, you'll be getting your invitation shortly. I think I jumped up and and said, you know, pumped my fist and then said to my wife, Oh my God, Penny, they did it. They did it. And I'm going to speak at it.
7: It's the day of the event. We're excited and we're really nervous.
0: The Pentagon Auditorium is downstairs. The stage is not very big. It's built for something like, you know, a panel of three or four.
7: The auditorium is filling up. And in the back of the auditorium, it turns out there are dozens of TV cameras. And they come from the military's own news reporting structure and from the national networks.
0: There was so much tension in the room. It felt a little like every straight person in the room was a little bit worried that people might think they were gay, and every gay person in the room was a little worried people might think they were gay. It's almost like, you know, on game day, you feel the tension, and it's like, it feels good because you know you're ready. That's how I felt. I felt like, okay, this is good, give me the ball. I think back to when I arrived at my first duty station in 1980. One of the first people I met was our battalion PAC NCO, personal, personnel NCO. And forgive the stereotype, but he was about six foot four and he was the fiercest, most fabulous, you know, take no prisoners, flamboyant gay man I'd ever seen. <laughs> and yet, all of the captains and majors and colonels deferred to him because he knew his job inside and out. He knew it better than anybody else. When he would pass me in the hall and say, how you doing, ma'am? I... You could see them all, they started to laugh and relax. The other folks would say, well, that's just Riley. And like, okay, this is gonna be all right. And that was my intent. And from there, it was, it was easy. We can't believe
7: it's going so well. We had a gay Marine who is active duty.
0: When the repeal happened, I went into work thinking that my life was going to change. And I went in, and I sat down at my desk, and I kind of braced myself on the desk, waiting for everyone to come and ask me if I was gay.
7: (laughs) We played the
1: president's message for Pride Month. As we celebrate LGBT Pride Month, we
2: remember the activists and advocates who refused to be treated like second-class citizens. It it touched me. I mean, I, I get emotional to this day when I think about the growth that I watched happen on that stage. It absolutely changed me. Seeing our friends in
0: the Pentagon Auditorium was so celebratory and exciting. I mean, people with these huge smiles, people with tears in their eyes, that we're here, this is happening.
2: I was sitting with my husband, the man I'd married just a couple months previous because it was no longer unlawful to do so. And, and then
0: the event, it starts with a presentation of the colors as the colors come down the aisle. Cool. And the fact that it was for pride was so moving to stand there and render honors. As I'd learned as a 17-year-old at West Point, knowing that this ceremony was celebrating something that I'd had to hide was almost more than I could handle.
6: Yeah. It was one of the proudest moments of my entire life. It meant that we could never go back.
4: The Pentagon's Secret Gaggle of Gays was produced by Audrey Quinn for the podcast Nancy, co-hosted by Kathy Tu and Tobin Lowe. Coming up after the break, the hardest job in the world, parenting, in the hardest place in the world, prison. Back in a minute. ReSound is supported by Field Notes, vintage-styled, made-in-the-USA pocket notebooks and other stationery products. Weekdays at 401 North Racine in Chicago or anytime at FieldNotes.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at
8: Airbnb.com/slash host.
4: Welcome back to Resound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxine. At Third Coast, we are constantly listening to podcasts, radio shows, everything we can get our ears on. And of all the stuff we hear, we share the very best with you.
8: When you were growing up, what was some advice your dad gave you?
9: Well, that's the problem. Um, but my, um, my
10: dad left when I was four.
9: Yeah, the only advice I got from my dad was to be still and take this
11: up open like a man.
10: He used to show me yeah, what, what fork to use, like the crab fork, and we had all these uh, like instruments of silverware out on the table. It took me a while to get the hang of that.
12: Oh, did my dad give me any advice? No, but he led by example of what not to do.
4: Welcome to Ear Hustle a podcast that brings you stories of life inside prison, shared and produced by those living there. The podcast is a partnership between Nigel Poor, a Bay Area visual artist, and Erlon Woods, who was incarcerated at San Quentin State Prison. The series was co-founded with fellow inmate Antoine Williams. I say that Erlon was incarcerated because after serving 21 years of a 31 years to life sentence, Governor Jerry Brown of California commuted Erlon's sentence just before Thanksgiving, and he is now a free man. He's still working as a producer on Ear Hustle, of course, and the show will be following him as he begins his next chapter. But let's just say, never underestimate the power of a great podcast. So great, in fact, that the Ear Hustle episode, Dirty Water, won the 2018 Third Coast Festival Best Documentary Honorable Mention Award. On this episode, Nigel and Erlon talked to three people trying to make parenting work, From Inside Prison, here's Nigel and Erlon.
8: E, did your dad give you any good advice?
11: You mean when I was like growing up? Yeah. Not that I can recall, but when I went to prison, he did say, watch your back.
8: (laughs) Uh, Was that helpful?
11: I mean, it was cool coming from him, you know.
8: I guess it showed that he cared, right? Pretty much. (laughs) Okay. Well, being a parent is a lot more than giving advice. But if you're in prison, it's hard to even do that because you're in prison.
11: Yeah, but you can actually give advice and be a dad from prison. It's harder, but a lot of guys here have children and there's all sorts of different ways that they
5: do it. And that's
11: what we're going to hear about today.
8: And mainly, we're going to focus on this guy
5: here. So when I was told I was going to be a father, I started to think about what type of father did I plan on being. Derek
11: Holloway has been incarcerated for 21 years. When his son was born, Derek was a 24-year-old drug dealer and had a lot on his mind.
5: I can't be a father like this in my current condition and living the way that I was living. I really need to change
8: but needing to change and actually changing your life, Derek now knows, are two different things.
5: You know, I'm at the hospital with his mom, and seeing his face was like, wow. It was like a miracle. It was like, man, this a uh, human being, is. I'm responsible for a human being? And so, man, what came with that was a whole lot of emotions. A whole lot, a whole lot that I wasn't even really prepared for or had even the emotional intelligence to even deal with it. And I just didn't know how to say, this child is what's most important. I just didn't have the tools.
11: In spite of being a new dad, he didn't change.
5: I started getting sucked in into the criminal lifestyle, criminal thinking, criminal behavior. After that, it was off to the dogs.
8: <laughs> so... um Give me a, a typical day, like what was your, you got up and then how did so, the day unfold? So
5: I would I would get up and of course I would, you know, have girlfriends strolled all over the city. <laughs> so it, depending on what girlfriend house I was at, you know, so I would get up and kind of call around, see where everybody was doing, where everybody was going to be at. Um, and I would, you know, hit the freeway, get to, get to this block where everybody was at, kind of kick back, see what was going on. Um, so the typical day really was like me really making sure that the, the, the spot where we was at had, had dope out there. You know, people were out there. They were ready. The spot was rolling. Um, and so I would kick it there for a minute. But I would always be trying to run and see what, what, what the next woman, what she was doing. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I just love women.
11: <laughs> Derek was living a life. He was young. He had money, women. He thought he was on top of it all.
5: So the downfall was um, beginning really to use drugs.
11: And then he really got in trouble. In 1997, less than a year after his son was born, Derek was arrested for first-degree murder and sentenced to 37 years to life.
8: The next time Derek saw his son, he was in prison behind thick glass in a visiting
10: room.
5: So he, so he came to visit on his on his first birthday, and I'm just looking at him. And some of my thoughts was, uh, was this glass going to represent our relationship? And um, you know, for the for the first time, I was realizing and thinking, like, man, there's a possibility that I may never um, get an opportunity to to see him as a child, man, grow up and to, and have some kind of influence in his life. Come on, somebody can do better than that. Let's give the Lord a hand clap of praise. Left. To my own self, I, I couldn't find a way out. I wanted to do something different, but I didn't know how. And and coming to prison actually really gave me that opportunity to sit down and really examine my life, and to begin to get the courage and to do something different with my life. I feel God. I feel God in here. I feel deliverance in here. I feel a breakthrough in this place. Whenever you talk about
8: the... In prison, Derek got religion, and he's now a prison preacher with a full-on congregation.
5: So if he put himself in prison, what prison are you talking about, Lord? He said, I went all the way down to hell, and I pulled the captives out, and I set them free. I did something that you can't do. Yes,
11: you can give a lot of guys get religion, fake religion, act religious, but Derek's not. Do, he's like the real deal. How do you know? Because you could sit in one of his sermons, and he'd just have a tear or two in your eyes. You know? Really? Ridiculous. I mean, it's, it's, and he walked the walk. He don't just walk the walk on the pulpit. He walked the walk on the yard, and he go around and counsels people, counsels the youth. So yeah, he's real.
8: But he couldn't counsel his own son. When his son's mother died, the boy's maternal grandmother took him in, and she thought it was best to keep him away from his father. And Derek only heard what was going on second and third hand.
5: So when he was growing up, I heard good things early on, you know, him being in church and, and I would send him Bibles and him playing football and, you know, him going to different schools, academies. and And then I started hearing different things about him being you know, in the street life and going hard. And I was really disappointed. And even hearing that made me feel grief and, and pain and... So he was basically growing up like you were. Yeah, he was growing up like I was.
11: Derek was soon going to get a second chance to parent his son. And we're going to hear about that in a minute. But first, here's another prison dad with a very different experience of parenting from prison.
12: I could have been a a dad at 17 and been just absolutely happy and dedicated, and I think I could have been a good pop, you know, as a kid. So it was something I wanted, and uh, I was excited, confident, hopeful, and fulfilled.
8: John was 35 when his first child was born. When he committed the crime that led him to prison, his kids were 3, 8, and 9 years old.
12: Uh, it happened so suddenly. It was the, the night of December 20th, and I was coming back from a Christmas party, and it was one of those drinking and driving fatality cases. So I didn't have time to, to, to think, well, what, what would happen if I were taken away from my kids? That thought never, never occurred to me. It was just utterly, chillingly sudden. From the very beginning, uh, being separated from them was the, you know, the most gut-wrenching part of it. Besides, of course, what, what had happened. The two young, innocent lives were taken because of what I had done. I tried to be open with them about my responsibility. I, I tried to... To get them tuned in to that, you know, not to thinking of me as a victim. And I think that made made them a little more receptive to our parent-child relationship.
8: After John was arrested, he never went home again. He was a lawyer, middle class, but he couldn't make the $750,000 bail. The family life that he knew and loved was
11: just gone. But... John was all about being a dad, and now he had to figure out how to do it from prison. Not easy.
12: I remember they, of course, they came regularly in county jail when I was there, Uh, but of course you couldn't hug them there. It was through the glass.
8: After county jail, he got his sentence and was sent to a maximum security prison in Southern California. In that prison, his family could visit without glass between them.
12: I'll never, as long as I live, forget the visiting room at Lancaster and I spied them across the room, and, and Remy, that my daughter, just ran towards me. And, you know, the, just the feeling of, of hugging her, and then the boys joined me then, and I had my arms around all three of them. It might be the most emotional uh, moment that, I, that I've ever experienced. There were so many hard parts about being away from the kids, but the biggest part was that I was so limited in, in how I could carry out what I still so fervently wanted to do uh, as far as being a good dad to them. For the longest time, when they were small, I would write one letter a day and alternate amongst the three of them. Of course, each of them would be receiving a letter every three days. I remember with my daughter Remy, she was the youngest, she was little, and uh, I I started a a series of poems called the Silly Sally Poems, and she got a real kick. She'd say, Dad, Dad, when are you going to, you know, I want some more Silly Sally. So I kept writing and writing, finally she got to be about eight or nine years old, and she was a little bit too old for that. But she talks about those still.
8: john 's kids are all grown up now they all went to college the oldest is now thirty and if you 're wondering what happened to their mother, she and John are still married
12: i mean, i 'll I'll be very frank it was much more important and, and much more much harder you know staying the, the, the meaningful father. Uh, I felt a much more biting acute loss of the children than I did my wife rightly or wrongly.
5: I didn't get a chance to really speak to him at 12 or 13 or get pictures or send stuff to him and just kind of communicate with him. I didn't get any of those things.
11: Back to Derek, who hadn't heard directly
5: from his son in years. The time that I heard that my son was even um, thinking about me is when he was in jail. So I get on the phone with, with my sister And she says, "Um, I I got something to tell you. Derek should be there, like, tomorrow. Derek should be there tomorrow. He called right before he he left the county jail and, and said that I'm on my way to San Quentin.
8: Derek's son, who he hadn't seen in about 20 years, is coming to his prison. What are the chances?
11: Well, you don't see it a lot, but I've met a few guys who are locked up with relatives. But father and son, that's an entirely different level
5: of weirdness. I told a couple of my friends, I was like, man, my son is here. And so I went out that night to see if I can get just a glimpse of him.
8: So when his son first came to San Quentin, he went to reception which is basically orientation. And those guys there don't wear blue. They're in the orange jumpsuits.
5: And I'm looking at every guy in orange as they're walking by. And I'm kind of measuring their height because I hadn't seen him since he was like 11 months old. And so I'm like measuring the height, like, okay, looking at the walk, the bill, I'm just looking at all these different things and these people trying to identify my son. So, so you had no clue what he looked like? Had no clue. You never you, had any pictures. I, I mean, I had one picture, but he's twenty years old now, you know. And you're trying to see like what what does a from a. Well, I think his last picture I got when he was like six years old. Like so, from six years old to twenty, like what has changed in all of those years?
10: You kind of walk in. I noticed him from the picture, even though it was old. I noticed him, and then. He just came up and just gave me a hug and just start crying, breaking down.
8: That's Derek Jr. He's serving 5 years for robbery.
10: So when I looked at him and I just saw the love in his eyes, so kind of felt the connection right there. That's like uh, it's like it's different. You talk to a lot of people, but you never actually feel that connection till you're sitting there with your dad. You never met him at all and then you finally just sitting there eye to eye.
11: They saw themselves in each other, father and son. But really, they were strangers. All they had between them was some DNA and this old memory.
10: First memory of my dad I had was probably going to the jail and seeing the the glass in the mirror and seeing somebody behind it. That's all I remember.
5: So he's talking and I'm looking at him and... And, I'm, and, I'm, and in between our conversations of, you know, how, what, what has he been doing, you know, how is his girlfriend, how is my granddaughter, all of these different things, how is, you know, how is his grandmother, asking him all these questions. In between those things was this reality setting in that I'm in prison with my son, and I'm trying not to let that affect me as, I'm, as I speak with him. But, but the reality of it just kept hitting me. I'm in the cell with my son. So
11: there they are, father and son, reuniting in a f- up place. I mean, prison is not set up for family life, that's for sure.
8: For Derek Sr., he had to figure out how to be a dad to his son in a way that he had never been able to do on the outside.
5: How am I supposed to show up now? Like, am I supposed to be, like, his partner? You know, am I supposed to be, like, dad? Am I supposed to be, like, my father? Like, what am I supposed to do? And it was... So uncomfortable, but it was a good uncomfortableness, and it was like one. It was like that kind of uncomfortableness, like when I walk away, like I can't wait to be uncomfortable like that again. For me, right, the very first time that um, I heard Derek call me dad, it was, um, it was as though. God spoke to me, and I turned around so fast before he even really can get it all the way out.
8: How, how does it feel to say, Dad?
10: At, at first, it felt awkward. Like, oh, no, it felt awkward. Because I ain't never said it. I, ain't, I mean, I had no reason to. So and when I say it, I, I catch myself, and I be like, oh, <laughs> after about
5: 3 days after he was here i went up to his cell and i said yeah, come out we was on the tier I said come out and he came out of the cell and i said um your dad had a kiss right here and I, and he kissed me on the cheek I, I about ready to fly off the fifth tier i was ready to just yeah He, when he showed up here, um, that was, like, one of the things I had, like, on my calendar. Like, man, when is his birthday? I'm, so I, I made sure everything was all in place. Let me make sure I get this package right and make sure I get all this stuff right. So when it's his birthday, I'm going to go make him something. Because he had never really tasted my cooking.
10: T- came up there, told me happy birthday, hugged me and kissed me, and then told me he was getting ready to cook. And I ain't never ate his cooking.
8: So what did he make for you on your birthday?
10: Uh, it was a rice bowl, but it had seafood. It had all different type of stuff and different type of vegetables and everything. It was, I don't even eat vegetables yeah, but I ate <laughs> them.
11: So I'm strolling. I'm coming down the back of the building. So the back of the building, I got to turn and go upstairs. So I'm turning rolling. I see Big Derek and Little Derek in the shower. <laughs> hey side by side right? I'm like that's you like 20 years,
5: years ago, ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <all my> <laughs> <laughs> muscles goals <laughs> 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 I know I was looking up too <laughs> that's crazy
8: that, yeah, cause that wouldn't
1: happen
5: in
11: too many places no that wouldn't
5: no, happen oh, in too many places. Yeah. 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 you're just sitting there no. showering with your son no. y'all just you know cutting and, it in. <laughs> they just, and even that was awkward man you know that uh, but I had to force myself through it like, man, like this is the reality, man. Like, man, I'm, next. I'm like, where do they do this at? I watch him walk up the stairs sometimes, right? I'm walking behind. He always going faster than me. And I watch him go up. And I remember how, how I used to walk. And so when I watch him walk up the stairs, sometimes I'm like just staring at him like, man, look at me. That is me. And sometimes it is so overwhelming because nobody wants prison for their child. And so it makes me more protective, you know, now I'm more like, okay, where he at? And and I'll I'll see him, but I don't let him see me. <laughs> That brings up a whole other thing, but yeah, just watching him, watching his mannerisms, how he interacts with people on the tier, how he interacts with people in the prison, very outgoing, And I tell him this all the time I say, "You're just the functioning um, extrovert, because really you're an introvert, like me. <laughs> <laughs> you really want to be by yourself. you really do good by yourself, but because we're outgoing people we, you know, people talk to us and like us, and so I see that in him. But he, he has no problem being by himself.
10: <laughs> we basically do everything just like. When I get mad, I don't be bothered. I go outside at night, and I just be walking. And One night, I was just walking like, what the hell is you doing out here? He was like, man, I didn't feel like being bothered. And then we both ended up just being out there walking. <laughs> and then we always just running to each other out there like, man. I am nervous
5: every time the alarm goes off. I am like, where is he? Is he involved? Is there, was there a fight? Um, <laughs> you know, and so for me it is an anxious day every day. <laughs> <laughs> now I know what my parents went through. Wow, I'm serious. You reap what you sow, I'm telling you. <laughs>
8: So we last heard from you in season one when we were talking about the Boom Boom Room.
9: Oh, yes. The Mission Impossible conception of my son. That's
11: Maverick. In season one, he told us how him and his wife decided to start a family while he was in prison. Here's a clip from that episode.
9: I had been at this prison for two years, and we had mastered the art of being intimate on the patio. It got us to talking. And she was like, I wish I could have a kid right now. And that got me to thinking. I'm like, oh, man, this is the only thing that you can give her. You uh, you should go in here and give her this. I would only get a visit, like, maybe once. How old is he now? He is 15 years old.
8: So he's a teenager.
9: Man tell me about it.
11: Maverick's been in prison for his son's entire life.
8: But they have visits and phone calls.
11: And letters. Yep. That's what you got to work with if you want to be an active parent from prison.
8: And starting about a year ago, Maverick began having family visits. And that's one of the biggest privileges here.
11: It's huge. That's when your wife and your kids.
8: Or it can be your parents and siblings. Come to stay with you for a few days in a cottage here.
11: And we asked Maverick to tell us about the latest family visit he had with his wife and his son.
9: I cut his hair for the first time. And that's like a rite of passage for every father to cut his son's hair at some point in time. And he was scared at first because the whole month before the visit, I told him, you better not get your hair cut. Don't get your hair cut. I'm going to cut your hair. And he's like, oh, all right. Uh," You know, he was skeptical and then I brought my, my clippers out and when it came time to do it I'm like take off your shirt and he's embarrassed because you know he's he's a little big fella for his age and uh, he's like oh and he, it was so funny I'm like boy if you don't stop I am your daddy I gave you that you know it ain't no judgment I ain't never gonna judge you you are about to go to one of the most horriblest cruelest places on the planet high school and some people gonna be making fun of your body. If you are embarrassed of your body, then kids are gonna use that against you. So you gotta be comfortable in the skin you in. So just get comfortable. After I cut his hair he went to look at it, and he was like, "Oh my good, oh my goodness papa this is this is great! you know I, I, I got to pay forty dollars to get this haircut. and I was like, "Yeah, boy, you're going to be able to get that every day when I uh, come home and it, it it just gave me a glimpse of how thirsty he is to have a father in his life, but I believe that unsurety of exactly when I was going to come home. It was occupying too much of his mind. I got him worrying about me in here, so much where he can't focus in class. And that's what hurts me the most, me not being able to help him process this, me not being able to be there, to, to just be there, to help him, to hold him, to let him know, look, it's going to be all right.
11: It's been a long struggle, but the good news is his son might have his dad home soon. Maverick has a date, which means he could be released on parole sometime this year.
8: Thanks for coming back. I know this isn't an easy one. So what we wanted to talk about um, was what happened with your son.
1: Yeah.
5: Yeah, so... uh Um. Actually, got a call at work, and said that um they were ready to transfer Derek, and um, they were like transpacking him right now. So I needed to get there right away. Went back to the building, so his his door is open, and and I see a lot of boxes out in the front, and some of his tubs, and you know, and it and it really began to sink in that he was getting ready to leave and I had all these emotions going on like um could I said something else you know what else could I have done should I have moved him in um you know should I have been there a little bit more kind of like fending off some of these bad people had all these emotions going all these thoughts all these feelings
8: the reason Derek Jr. was transferred out of San Quentin is because he got in trouble for contraband,
11: and it was happening fast. So Derek Senior went to go see him one last time.
8: Did he say anything
5: to you? Yeah, he just kind of looked, and and I I read his 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 thoughts kind of. I w- looked in his eyes, and it was like, you know, Dad, I don't really want to leave. Um, but I know I have to at this t- at this point, and and. Um, they're waiting on me in R and R right now. I said, Yeah, no. I know. I said, Well, I'll, I'm gonna help you carry your stuff down. And then when he comes out to actually leave, he has on his blue uniform, as I like to call it. And he had his hair up in the, you know, because he has his long hair, so he's got it up with these dreads. He's got it up in a ponytail. And I'm looking at him. We're standing at the end of the at the top of the stairs, and he and he hugs me, and he's like, "Dad, I love you." And Man, he shoots down the stairs so fast, I'm trying to keep up when I realize how, you know. <laughs> so he goes out the door and I'm following him. I'm like, I'm gonna walk down there with you. And he's walking down and I remember studying everything about him. I actually walk behind him just to look at him and I'm studying his his body motion, his footsteps and everything, yeah. Where did he go? To um, Vacaville.
8: Which is a level three? Which
5: is a level three.
8: What's your biggest fear for him now?
5: Um, that he won't make it out.
8: So as we said, Derek Jr. came in with a five-year sentence. But Derek Sr.'s fear is that it could turn into a much longer sentence. I know you've said you've seen this happen to guys.
11: Yeah, I've seen a guy that came in with a car theft and committed murder in prison, and he's been here 46 years.
8: Right, he's still at San Quentin. Still here. So that's one big concern for Derek Sr. The other is he's lost daily contact with his son.
11: He told us he's waiting to get permission to exchange letters with him, but yeah, it's a blow.
8: The closeness that he achieved for the first time with his son isn't going to be easy to maintain.
11: It's not just that Derek Sr. is in prison, which is hard enough, His son's now in a different prison in a different part of the state. It's now like they have two thick layers of glass between them.
4: Thick Glass was produced by Erlon Woods, Nigel Poor, and Antoine Williams from the studio at San Quentin Prison for Ear Hustle from Radiotopia. It's winter. I don't love snow, but I do love shoveling. Part of it is compulsive. I like to get out there before anyone has walked on the pristine powder, tamping it down and making it impossible to scrape off the sidewalk smoothly. And part of it is the clarity and speed of the job. Half an hour and you've accomplished a great deal. Unless maybe, say, you're in New Hampshire. It's a really fast falling snow and you finish only to have to start all over again. In Sean Hurley, I have found a soulmate. Here is Still Life with Shovel.
1: The snow falls. The storm ends and starts again. I plant my shovel in the snow pile like a flag on the moon of winter. Take my boots off, put them back on again. The plows shudder by and shudder by. On snow chain tires and spitting sand, and I have no plans to lean the shovel in its summer spot behind the house. I remember shoveling the family driveway in the blizzard of 78. I was 11 years old and knew I was shoveling legendary snow. In fourth grade, we had to learn to spell the word Samaritan. The teacher told us what a good Samaritan was, and I wondered about the existence of such a peculiar and helpful person. Was I a good Samaritan? Early one morning in the snow, I was ten, I went down the street and shoveled the walkways of my older neighbors. Good Samaritan, that great pair of two good words ran in circles around my head, like a halo in the making. But this was also the counter-magic to a summertime habit I regularly indulged. The Bad Samaritan Game of Ding Dong Ditch. I hoped as I shoveled that someone would catch me, being so good. They would smile from a window or come down and try to give me something. I would accept an English muffin or hot chocolate, but I would refuse all offers of money. I would brush off any thanks, disappear as quickly as possible, late for my next appointment, with utter goodness. But no one noticed later I waited to hear the powerful rumors of the mysterious shoveler but there was nothing apparently good Samaritans can go unseen unspoken of it must be too late but I still want to tell them it was me you fools who shoveled your walk in the late 70's and also by the way it was me ringing your doorbell all those times there was no one there sorry about that, and yes, I'll take an English muffin. I've always shoveled where I've lived, but when we moved to Thornton a decade ago, there was already a neighbor, long used to plowing out our horseshoe driveway, so I let it go. But we had our walkway, 4 feet wide by 10 feet long, and I had my Samaritan's history with walkways. I make a big deal of what I've got left. The shoveler's equivalent of a comb-over. A postage stamp I can clear in a single minute. But I am still a shoveler. A veteran of the great blizzard of 78. Unrecognized walkway Samaritan of the year before. The plows shudder by and shudder by. I plant my shovel in the snow pile. Like a flag on the moon of winter. Boots off and on. The storm ends and starts again, and I have no plans to lean the shovel in its summer spot behind the house.
4: Still Life with Shovel was produced by Sean Hurley for New Hampshire Public Radio. Check out Sean's Third Coast Short Talk winner, My Life as a Cup, when you visit our website, Third Coast Festival. You've been listening to Resound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxai. The program is produced by Isabel Vasquez and curated by Johanna Zorn and Maya Goldberg Safer. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear more than 2,000 outstanding documentaries from around the world. And subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with LEED funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. Want to stay up to date on the latest Third Coast happenings? Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or subscribe to our newsletter at thirdcoastfestival.org. With so much to listen to and so little time, ReSound, all diamonds, no rough. We'll be right back.
12: The